Good evening, everyone. My name is Leon Rosenberg, and I'm a faculty member in molecular biology and in the Woodrow Wilson School. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome you to this public lecture that is being sponsored by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Our speaker this evening is J. Craig Venter, President and Chief Scientific Officer of Solera Genomics Corporation. The title of his remarks is Sequencing the Human Genome. Dr. Venter was born in Utah, raised in California, and educated at the University of California in San Diego, where he received both his bachelor's degree in biochemistry in 1972 and his PhD in physiology and pharmacology in 1975. From 1976 to 1984, he was on the faculty at the State University of New York in Buffalo. He then moved to the National Institute of Neurological Diseases and Stroke at the National Institutes of Health, where his interest in neurotransmitter receptors kindled his use of DNA cloning and sequencing technologies. By 1991, Dr. Venter and his colleagues had developed the technology for sequencing small pieces of DNA called ESTs for expressed sequence tags. In so doing, he had become convinced of the feasibility of identifying and sequencing all expressed human genes. Dr. Venter left NIH in 1992 to found the Institute for Genomic Research, TIGER for short, a not-for-profit entity whose goal was to develop technology capable of accelerating the sequencing of genomes of simple and complex organisms, including humans. At TIGER, he and his colleagues solved, for the first time, the complete DNA sequence of a living organism, the bacterium Haemophilus influenzae, thereby proving the value of their approach and the feasibility for taking on more complex problems. In 1998, Craig Venter founded Solera Genomics with funds from the Perkin Elmer Company with the stated goal of sequencing the entire human genome in three years, a goal applauded by some laughed at by many, and sneered at by still others. If you believe, as I do, that public lectures are best delivered by public figures, then we certainly have the right person with us this evening. It would be hard to identify anyone in the life sciences community who is more visible today than Craig Venter. On the face of it, this is because he and his colleagues at Solera accomplished their goal and were given essentially a full issue of the journal Science on February 16th of this year to publish their version of the nearly complete human genome sequence, all three billion bases. In that same week, Nature devoted its full issue to the same subject, 
its authors being a consortium of publicly funded scientists from many institutions in the US and Europe to devote two full issues of the two most widely read science journals in the world to the same subject, the linear sequence of the human genome, and to have the findings reflect what most knowledgeable people judge as a photo finish in arguably the most hotly contested science race ever is to witness something quite remarkable. Craig Venter has published more than 160 scientific articles. His work has brought him several prestigious awards, among them from the American Society of Microbiology and the King Faisal Foundation. But more voluminous than what he has written is what has been said and written about him. His friends and colleagues laud him as smart, creative, bold, energetic, and entrepreneurial. His detractors, and they are both numerous and notable, say he is a greedy, stubborn egomaniac. They use words about him that you would expect to find only on the TV show The Sopranos. Mostly, I think, this reflects the extraordinary competition generated by the Genome Project, which has been hyped even beyond the limits observed in the often hotly contested world of genetics. As those of us in the field can attest, we have witnessed competition for most of the major achievements in genetics during the past half century. The double helix, the triplet nature of the genetic code, the mechanism of gene splicing, and the methodology permitting recombinant DNA technology to mention a few. But never in my experience has the competition been as fierce, as prolonged, as public, and I must say as titillating as that related to the Human Genome Project. Why? because in addition to the usual kudos that go with being first is added the potential for coin that may also go to the victor. In fact, many of us are concerned that the scientific accomplishment that we celebrate tonight not be lost sight of in the all too human aspects of the competition and the competitors. It is a gross exaggeration to refer to the human genome sequence as the, quote, scientific holy grail, end quote, or, quote, the book of man, end quote, or such other phrases. But it is not an exaggeration to say that knowing the human genome sequence will permit a wide array of questions to be asked that were previously impenetrable questions about how we are made, about why we get sick, about why we get old, and about how like other animals we are, and yet how different. It is the science that drew Craig Venter to this work. 
and it is the implications of the genome for health and disease that continue to intrigue him. Please welcome Craig Venter to Princeton. Thank you, Lee. I think that was the uh, most extensive and I think flattering introduction I've uh, had. Um, I'll have to think about it a while. <laughs> uh, it's indeed a pleasure uh, to be here. Uh, we've had fun all day in terms of uh, one of the classes that I participated in. And we had even uh, more intellectual exchanges over dinner that made it uh, more intriguing. I thought I would fill in some of the blanks around uh, what Lee said in his introduction to build a context of how we went from one phase to another, in fact, even why. In 1994, when I went to NIH, uh, I had spent about eight years trying to purify one protein, the beta-adrenergic receptor from both brain and from heart. After another year of work, we finally got enough protein to finally get a little bit of sequence accumulated in cloning the gene in 1985. It was not a large gene. It was 1,200 base pairs. Uh, it then took my laboratory at NIH roughly a year to sequence those 1,200 letters. It seems absolutely absurd now when we can do that in a second or less today. Uh, but this was around the time when the first discussions started to take place about sequencing the human genome. Most, if not all, the discussion was in the human genetics community. Geneticists wanted to use this as a means for uncovering disease genes at a faster pace uh, than they were. I, I think I was one of the few biochemists that was actually intrigued and excited about this project, perhaps because I just spent a decade of my life trying to find one gene. And so the notion that all of them could be found in a 15 or 20 year effort uh, was exciting to me. Uh, many of you know that the adrenergic receptors are now part of a very large gene family. And we we're interested in the evolution of that gene family and it was clear that the rate of finding them was not going to uh, drive science very far, very fast. So I started with an interest in genomics as a means to get more seven transmembrane receptors to understand their structure and their evolution, and slowly became interested in the larger problem of genomics itself. In 1987, my lab became the first test site for the first automated DNA sequencer built by Mike Hunkapiller's team at Applied Biosystems. I was the least likely lab that anybody would choose as a test site because I'd sequenced one 1,200 base pair gene, uh, and those weren't exactly great credentials uh, at the time. But we managed to get it working very successfully. In fact, for approximately three years, we were one of the few centers that could get it to work. It was a very simple biochemical technique. Um, 
I trained in Nate Kaplan's lab in La Jolla, and all he had in the lab were Zeiss spectrophotometers and Sorval centrifuges, so you got to learn one or both of them very well. And I learned to use a spectrophotometer, which was the key to getting the DNA sequencer working, because if you had the wrong ratio of primer to DNA, you just got random noise, because there was a secondary binding site in this primer. And so most molecular biologists who just guessed how much DNA they had basically got random noise out of the machines. Because we were having such great success and with this interest in the genome project, my NIH lab became the test site for doing the first two sequencing projects to see if sequencing the genome was feasible. This was from a region on the tip of chromosome 4, the short arm, trying to find the Huntington's disease gene, and we worked with the Huntington's consortium on doing that, and a piece of chromosome 19 trying to find the gene associated with myotonic dystrophy. We sequenced roughly 100,000 base pairs from each region uh, and did not find either gene in those regions because uh, the sampling was obviously way too small. But it was actually trying to interpret that DNA sequence that really began to create the challenges that stimulated what we did next. The computer algorithms could not find genes readily in the genome sequence. So the best we could do was to have a cDNA sequence to confirm what we'd found there. So if there was an algorithm prediction, we made PCR primers around those putative exons, went to cDNA libraries, and to see if we could amplify something. If we could, we would then sequence it and compare it back to the genomic sequence. It was only then that we could verify that we'd found a gene. After two years, we found eight genes in those regions. Uh, and now if you look at the genome chart, you see why there were so many there. Uh, and that led to the earlier higher estimates of the number of genes in the genome. It became clear to interpret the human genome we needed cDNA sequences. And being at NIH and having a budget to do whatever we wanted to do, uh, when I got an idea that led to this EST method, we were able just to go to the lab and do the experiment. We didn't have to try and convince somebody to give us money to do the experiment. We basically randomly selected a number of cDNA clones from a brain cDNA library and just sequenced one reaction from them, thinking that if we had a database of such sequences, it would enable us to annotate the genome once we had eventually gotten it sequenced. Out of these few hundred early sequences, we discovered 337 new brain genes. Uh, and this was published in a key paper uh, in Science in 1991. In 1991, there were only a few dozen genes known from the human brain and less than 2,000 human genes that had been sequenced altogether. So with this first study and one a few months later in Science describing 2,000 new human brain sequences, it had an immediate impact on gene discovery. Uh, but it was very controversial early on because NIH had filed a patent on these 337 genes, uh, and that created uh, a lot of confusion over this approach. It wasn't until a few years later after we had formed the Institute for Genomic Research and doing a survey of the human body in terms of expressed genes uh, that we got a call from Bert Vogelstein's lab. He had found one mismatched DNA repair enzyme 
that explained about 8% of the cases of hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. And so he was sure there had to be at least one additional gene uh, to explain some of the rest. In fact, there were three new mismatched DNA repair enzymes that we had found uh, in our database from the EST sequencing. Within a week, they were all sequenced full length, mapped back to the genome, and they all corresponded to regions that Birch Lab had associated with colon cancer. So it was within three months of discovering these in the database that we published papers in Science and Nature describing now a complete set of four genes associated with non-polyposis colon cancer. It was only then that the EST method had really caught on uh, when people discovered the success of really making unique discoveries with it. I'm not going to discuss ESTs anymore other than the method that they led to. Uh, in the late 80s when we were sequencing those first test regions of the human genome, the best algorithms could only deal with a thousand sequences in terms of reassembling them. Cosmids at 35,000 base pairs were the largest piece of DNA that anybody could sequence in a single project. The limitations were not cloning, they weren't molecular biology or biochemistry, they were mathematical and computational. We were developing hundreds of thousands of EST sequences, other labs were developing hundreds of thousands of EST sequences. We didn't think there were hundreds of thousands of human genes, we needed an algorithm to put all this together. And so Granger Sutton at Tiger developed the first uh, whole genome assembler. Uh, to assemble EST sequences. We were sitting around discussing what this new mathematical tool could be used for, and Ham Smith suggested that we sequence a microbial genome. We spent some time putting together some methodologies, and in 1994, Ham and I wrote a grant and submitted it to NIH, proposing to sequence the Haemophilus influenza genome in one year. The E. coli genome project was in its ninth year of funding at that time, and the yeast genome, I think, was in its eighth year of funding. We used the Tiger Endowment to go ahead and start the project. And shortly before this paper was published in Science in July of 1995, we got back our pink sheet from NIH telling us what we proposed wouldn't possibly work, was absolutely impossible, and they weren't going to fund it. Uh, I called uh, Francis Collins uh, and explained that it really was working uh, and that we were close to finishing it and that they should fund it so that they wouldn't be embarrassed by it. And um, really, that was honorable intentions at the time. Uh, they drifted slightly later on. But, uh, um, and the study section was so adamant that it wouldn't work um, that even on appeal, uh, it was not funded. About one month later, this paper was published in Science. And even though it was not our intention when we started the experiment to try and sequence the first genome from a free living organism, it was just to see if the method would work. Uh, it had ended up being the first genome for a free living organism that was sequenced. It would be fun to spend the rest of this hour talking about the exciting things that have come from looking at that genetic code uh, but I want to tell a, a more complete story. A few months later, we sequenced the second genome, Mycoplasma genitalium, uh, and 
a short while later, the first environmental organism, the first archaea, Methanococcus genasii. Scientists, including ourselves, after the first two genomes, were beginning to think that the genome pool on the planet might be smaller than people had suggested, because here was a gram-negative organism, Haemophilus influenzae, and a mycoplasma that derived from a gram-positive organism, such as B. subtilist, that had tremendously overlapping genomes. And everybody, including ourselves, were surprised by that. Uh, fortunately, we only thought those. Other people actually wrote those ideas down and published them, that uh, that was the extent of the gene pool, and it was very small. When we sequenced the Methanococcus genome, this is an organism that lives in hypothermal vents deep in the ocean. At our body temperatures, it's frozen solid. It comes to life about 60 degrees centigrade. Its temperature optimum is 85 degrees centigrade. It's totally happy in 100 degrees centigrade uh, water. Uh, a lot of its genes were recognizable, but most looked new uh, to science. And that, in fact, started to suggest that the pool might be much larger. There's been an exponential growth in the number of genomes uh, sequenced since that 95 publication. About half of those have been done either by uh, the teams at Tiger or Solera. This is a list of some of the pathogens that have been published uh, from Tiger, including uh, malaria, chromosomes, uh, and the tuberculosis uh, genome. In terms of environmental organisms, I mentioned Methanococcus genasii, but my favorite organism is Deinococcus radiodurans, which is a very GC-rich organism that was discovered in the 1950s when the government attempted to irradiate meat to sterilize it for long-term storage. And regardless of the dose of radiation, they could not kill this one red pigmented bacteria that kept growing out of the meat. Uh, it was characterized and found to be very radiation resistant and named Didococcus radiodurans. It can take three million rads of radiation. Its chromosomes get blown apart with a couple hundred double-stranded breaks, but over 12 to 24 hours stitches its chromosomes back together again in the exact same order that they were and starts replicating again. Even in Washington, I haven't met anybody that can do that. <laughs> In fact, Francis Crick helped popularize the notion of panspermia as the source of life originating on this planet. But it was discounted because there were no organisms that could survive the conditions of outer space. Uh, here's one. Deinococcus can survive in totally uh, dehydrated conditions. In fact, it's been found on granite surfaces in Antarctica. Uh, it can exist in a vacuum. It can take huge ionizing doses of radiation, have its genome blown apart, but you put it in a, a water source. It stitches its chromosomes back together and starts replicating again. If Dan Golden is still in office in, in a while, don't get surprised when he announces that they've discovered Deinococcus in outer space. Uh, every time... The space shuttle goes up every time they flush the commode on the space station. Billions of copies of this got launched. Um, 
NASA is now planning the experiment to coat the outside of a space shuttle with Deinococcus to see if it can survive going out and coming back. Uh, but I think it's a little late for that experiment. Uh, there's lots of radiation-resistant organisms, lots of organisms that live in environments that would not extrapolate from us being the center of the biological universe. When we first sequenced Haemophilus, we were told, well, we lucked out. It had a reasonable GC content, and this technique wouldn't be useful for the human genome because of the regions of high GC content. So we sequenced the TB genome and the Deinococcus radiodurans genome. And then we were told it wouldn't work for the low GC contents, the regions with lots of A's and T's. And we sequenced the malaria uh, chromosomes, which people thought were unsequenceable. But it was clear that we did not yet have the technology to scale up to sequence the human genome. But early in 1998, I got several calls from people at a, a Applied Biosystems, which was then part of Perkin Elmer, saying that they had developed a new technology that they thought would work very well with our whole genome shotgun method. Uh, and by the way, they were thinking of providing 300 or so million dollars to fund a new entity to sequence the human genome. Was I interested? I, I hung up on the first two guys because I thought they were crank calls. Um, <laughs> fortunately, they called back. Uh, Mike Hunkerpeller called and said that they weren't kidding, that he really did have a very exciting new machine and we needed to fly out and see it. Uh, I went out with a team of scientists. It was a breadboard device, but it was so clear the concept would change how we did everything that by the end of the day, we had a plan of how we were going to sequence the human genome in two to three years. This led to the formation of Celera. It was a combination of this new technology from applied biosystems, the whole genome shotgun strategy, and a very important component that most people discount is the high-end computing. We had to have 64-bit computing, uh, and we developed that with a partner, uh, Compaq. Our main sequencing lab, uh, which is a little bit hard to see, I don't know if there's too many lights on it, but uh, it's about the size of a football field. It has 300 of these $300,000 instruments in it, but only a few people. This facility works 24 hours a day, seven days a week with nine scientists that run it. The entire team from Ham Smith and two assistants making the sequencing libraries to three people picking two to 300,000 clones a day to an eight-person team doing two to 300,000 plasmid preps a day to an equally small team doing all these sequencing reactions using new techniques that were developed all since 1998 uh, at Celera to allow a small team to do these very high throughput procedures uh, led to very rapid sequencing. The biggest challenge was, in fact, dealing with the data. I didn't know anything about high-end computing. Uh, I did not know how to separate the claims from all the different major computer manufacturers who all insisted their computer was the only one that could do this. Uh, so it helped to be an experimental scientist. I gave the computer manufacturers a problem to solve. We gave them the data set from the Haemophilus genome and the algorithm 
and said it took us 11 days to do this on a Sun 32-bit computer. Can you do better? Uh, and very quickly it got down to two computer manufacturers. Uh, Compaq had, had recently bought the Alpha chip and IBM. Uh, Compaq's initial attempt uh, took 16 hours, which was better than 11 days. With optimization, they got it down to nine hours. And the best that the IBM computers could do at the time were about 36 hours. So it was very clear that knowing the scale up to do human, that we chose Compact as a partner to build this computer. It's currently a one and a half teraflop computer. A teraflop is a trillion calculations per second. And even with this size computer, it took 20,000 CPU hours to assemble the human genome. In fact, most of my colleagues were arguing that computers were not important for genomics or biology. But at Solera, the biggest limitation for people is getting sufficient compute time. And we recently announced a new partnership uh, with the U.S. government through the Sandia Lab uh, that built the DOE uh, high-end computers that are much bigger uh, than the one and a half teraflop computer and compact computers to try and build a hundred teraflop computer not for simulating nuclear weapons explosions, as the larger computers are used for, but for interpreting the human genetic code. Uh, there's now plans to build a so-called petacruncher, and it's thought that it's going to be at least another decade before there's enough compute power to model how we go from one egg to 100 trillion cells with 30,000 genes producing on the order of 250,000 different proteins and all the various changing combinations that lead to us being alive. So we think computing and biology is in its earliest days. As Lee said in his introduction, our proposal and uh, our plan to sequence the human genome was met with some degree of skepticism. And because the instrument for sequencing the genome was just a, uh, a prototype on the bench, we knew the algorithms that we had done for the microbial organisms were not sufficient for doing uh, human. We didn't have any of the techniques for scaling up the biology. We thought doing a test project was probably prudent. Uh, we chose the Drosophila genome because it had the most accurate map, and the most well-characterized map, which we would then know if the technique worked, it would be validated very quickly. And if it didn't work, it would also be shown not to work very quickly. Also coming out of the field of neurobiology, most of the discoveries that I saw happen in understanding nervous systems, including our own, came from studies in Drosophila. So it was clear it was one of the most important organisms for helping to interpret the human genetic code. At the same time, I'd asked scientists in the public effort on the human side to collaborate with us on the human genome and was turned down, I asked Jerry Rubin, who was head of the Drosophila Genome Project, if he would collaborate with us in getting it done quicker, and he accepted uh, very quickly. It led to a wonderful uh, collaboration. Now, with this technique, it's relatively uh, simple. Uh, the complexity is in the mathematics of the assembly, uh, which I credit others totally with. But basically, we take whether it's a microbial genome or the human genome, all the DNA out of the cells, 
we shear it and carefully size select it. Basically, all this work on every genome that we sequence has been done by Ham Smith, who's in his late 60s, who until he came to Solaris never had a lab technician. He's always done his own work, uh, even after getting his Nobel Prize in 1978. And dealing with large pieces of DNA effectively uh, is a tremendous challenge that he's one of the few people that really have mastered. Getting carefully size-selected pieces is an essential part of this. The other essential part is all our DNA sequencing is plasmid sequencing. That means we have both strands of DNA, so we can sequence from both ends of each of the clones that we have. And we call these mate pairs, and that's an absolutely essential component. You can imagine the laboratory procedures when these each end are done in separate tubes to track everything in the laboratory to make sure that when they end up in the database, we know that they both came from the exact same piece of DNA and how far apart they are created some tremendous uh, laboratory tracking uh, algorithms. For Drosophila, we use 2KB clones. These are 2,000 letters. 10 KB clones and 150 KB uh, back clones. Backs are bacterial artificial chromosomes. For the human genome, uh, Ham Smith and Rob Holt developed a new 50 KB plasmid cloning method that allowed us also to get in sequences from 50 KB uh, plasmids. Gene Myers, who uh, joined us almost immediately after the public announcement, I'd, he's one of the top algorithm scientists in this field. I'd been trying to recruit him for years. The day after we announced we were going to form Solera and sequence the genome, he called me and said, if you're going to do this, I have to be there. Will you hire me? Uh, and he said, all you have to do is pay my academic salary and I'll show up. And I said, great, you have a job. He called me back the next day and said, I'm still coming, but I understand companies pay better than academia. <laughs> I ended up doubling his salary. He said, I'll be there. The next day he called up and said, what are stock options? <laughs> so, so not only is he a brilliant mathematician, he's a very quick learner. By the time he had negotiated a very handsome package for himself, uh, uh, he showed up and started uh, recruiting uh, for the algorithm team that now is composed of 40 top algorithm scientists. But he'd been doing a number of simulations uh, in his lab in Arizona for quite some time. And while everybody was saying that the repeats in the genome would make this impossible, his simulations showed that if you just ignored the repeats and assembled the unique pieces, that we could unambiguously assemble over 99% of the genome. He found the success that we had with Haemophilus and other genomes, uh, the proof of the principle uh, for his mathematics. Basically, with these paired-in sequences, we're able to build very large scaffolds that work their way down the genome. So you can imagine pieces 150,000 letters long, additional pieces 50,000, 10,000, and 2,000, that slowly fill in this network uh, gives us a totally different outcome than if we just had the individual sequences from each end, which is how most people consider shotgun sequencing should work. Without these paired-in sequences, it would be impossible 
uh, with the data sets that we or anybody has to assemble any of these genomes. Fundamentally, um, at my level of understanding, it's pretty simple. We only put together pieces of the genome that can be unambiguously assembled into a single scaffold. So if there's the, more than one solution, we don't put it together. This is very simple. This is like doing a jigsaw puzzle, only it's a jigsaw puzzle in the case of the Drosophila genome with three million pieces. The pieces or strings of ACs, Gs, and Ts, 550 letters long. But what do you do when you solve a jigsaw puzzle? You pick up a piece and you compare it to all the other ones until you find a match. That's what this does, but it makes sure that there's only a single match in the entire set. And we build these, we call these unitigs. And then if you require two of these paired-in links to join unitigs together, there's mathematically less than one chance in 10 to the 15th of making an error in doing this. We end up with very large scaffolds with small holes where repeat sequences would go that can then go back and re resolve mathematically uh, afterwards. When this was done with the Drosophila genome, we compared it to all the STS markers that scientists had mapped on the genome. And we found out of over 2,000 markers, 16 sites did not agree. Each of these colored bars is one of the chromosome arms from the Drosophila genome. So this entire spectrum is dealing with 120 million letters of genetic code. Since this time, all 16 of those sites that didn't agree were found to be errors in the mapping, and all the known sites agree with the assembled sequence. In fact, Rubin's lab recently reported that they find less than one error in one million base pairs in the Drosophila genome sequence, making it probably the most accurate genome uh, that's been done to date. We had a genome sequence very quickly. Interpreting that data is an awesome task. We developed a new approach to dealing with that. We called it an annotation jamboree. We invited a large number of top Drosophila scientists from around the world to come and literally camp out at Solera for weeks on end. Uh, every day they would spend uh, sitting at the computer annotating sets of genes that they knew. This was actually a uh, the ultimate summer camp for nerds, I guess. Uh, but the, even trying to have dinner parties, uh, you know, they would eat dinner and run back to the computers. And they said that they made more discoveries in that two weeks than they probably had in the rest of their careers because all this data was new and they were seeing it for the first time. The team annotated 13,601 genes that will probably not be a number that stands the test of time. As you can see from this graph, over half of these are unknown or hypothetical genes. Unknown category at least means we have some types of evidence that they're probably real, such as there's an RNA or an EST available for them, even though we have no idea what that gene function is. A hypothetical one is where there's just an ab initio calculation with no supporting evidence. Probably most of the hypothetical genes will go away, and additional ones will be discovered uh, to add to this list. 
but the fact that over half the genes are in the new unknown category has uh, not been surprising in terms of other genomes. In fact, even the ones that are in these known categories are there just because they look similar to something that's been found. We don't actually know what the function of those genes are. Looking at all the genes that have been se genome sequenced to date, about half the genes in each genome were new unknown genes. Initially, people hypothesized that these were species-specific genes and probably not very biologically relevant. But then as we started doing additional genomes, those genes started showing up over and over again in other genomes. And now half of those we know to be highly conserved in multiple species. And I think that's just a matter of the paucity of the databases. With millions of species on this planet, we've only sampled a very small set of them that probably there's going to be very few, if any, absolutely species-specific genes. Less than a year from starting the project, less than a year from asking Jerry Rubin to join us in a collaboration, uh, we jointly uh, published uh, our description of the Drosophila genome uh, in Science. Immediately upon doing that, uh, as soon as we finished sequencing Drosophila, we started uh, sequencing uh, human. But I just want to put it in context of the Haemophilus genome, because uh, both projects took about the same amount of time. It took four months of actual sequencing for Haemophilus. That was to do 26,000 sequences. So with the new approaches at Celera in that same time, we were able to do three million sequences. You can see the biggest increase was in the group doing the genome assembly, uh, an order of magnitude increase. If we were to start the Haemophilus genome project over today, it would take two hours. If we were to do the yeast genome, which took 10 years to do, it would take approximately eight hours. The Drosophila genome, which took four months during the setup phase, could be done in about six weeks. The calculation that you heard took 11 days to do uh, at Tiger with the Sun 32-bit computer with the new algorithms and the new computers can now be done in under five minutes. So these are fairly dramatic changes in a very short period of time. We felt confident that we had the approaches that would, in fact, now work on human. We started with a number of normal volunteers. We characterized their karyotype to make sure that at least they had a full complement of chromosomes and made sure that they didn't have AIDS or hepatitis to make sure that they didn't cause problems with the people using the DNA. And out of the set, we selected five individuals for sequencing, three females and two males. We wanted to have diversity from the population, so we picked people that were self-identified as African-American, Hispanic, Chinese, and Caucasian. With these paired-in sequences, those clones and paired-in sequences covered the human genome 39 times. So you can see it was a very deep scaffold, and you can see why this could actually uh, go together. Sequencing took nine months, and we announced the first assembly at the White House on June 26th. It was actually a very exciting event uh, for a scientist. In fact, 
it was a very nervous event for everybody because uh, we'd worked in a long negotiation with Francis Collins and Ari Petrinos to have uh, this be a, a positive public event. The public effort did not have a specific milestone completed and what was driving it was Gene Meyer's team finishing the first assembly of the genome. We were given a date that the White House was going to have this event. It was not based on when the science was completed. We thought it could be completed by then. The first assembly was actually finished late in the evening on June 25th. <laughs> Uh, the White House staff kept calling very late into the night wanting to know if it was really going to be done. <laughs> was it soup yet? Um, but it was a, a unique event in terms of uh, uh, scientific announcements. Now this shows how the paired-in sequences make links across the genome in creating very large uh, scaffolds. And I don't know if this will show up. This is an actual assembly progression uh, that Gene Meyer's team put together. These are showing all the pieces across this uh, region. It's about three million base pairs. Even though we don't know the order, the pieces are shown where they would go in the end. Uh, at 3x coverage of the genome, you start to see these pink areas starting to create fairly large assemblies that there's a tremendous threshold between 3 and 4x where all the data really starts to come together. And by 5x coverage of the genome, basically all the pieces are linked up into these giant scaffolds. It only gets better from there with the number of gaps going down exponentially to the point at 7x coverage, essentially uh, it's in a complete assembly with a small number of gaps. This keeps going exponentially. With the Drosophila genome, we actually went up to 13x coverage because we didn't know the actual size of the genome. And we had to, once we stopped sequencing Drosophila, uh, we wanted to start human and not go back. So we did slight overkill on Drosophila. This assembly technique with these paired-in sequences assured that our data is in the proper order and orientation. This is key for defining the gene structure, the exon order. And you'll see in a minute it's even more important for one of the experiments that was unique uh, to uh, our study that has important implications in terms of evolution. We did the same experiment that we did with Drosophila. We took all the assembled chromosome arms, linked them together, and compared them to all the STS markers. And to our surprise, we only found about 5% of the markers didn't match the genome assembly. We were surprised because many of these markers, geneticists can't even agree which chromosome they're on. And we thought this was going to come out much worse. So we were, everybody was very comforted by that outcome. The scaffolds are very large. Uh, a third to a quarter of the genome are in pieces that are 10 million base pairs or larger. And most of the genome, well over 90% are pieces that are 100,000 base pairs or larger. This is what was described in the science paper. Gene's team has now done additional tweaking on his algorithm and is now has multiple scaffolds that are entire chromosome arms as single pieces. 
as you know, this was published in February in Science. The day it was being published is when we saw the cover for the first time, and I was very pleased that the science editors had had individuals on the cover indicative of the diversity that we tried to cover with our sequencing. Those of you who are mathematically inclined probably notice that there's six people instead of five on the cover. Uh, and I asked science if they put the uh, baby on there in honor of the nine months that it took to sequence the genome. <laughs> and, and now they're claiming that was, of course, their rationale. The biggest surprise, which everybody has obviously heard at nauseum now, is there were far fewer genes than most people imagined. If you go back to the early genetics literature, geneticists were predicting there was not enough space in the genome in terms of genetics for more than about 30,000 genes. Uh, but it's always easy to go back in the literature and find predictions that match rightly or wrongly where you currently are. We used evidence-based methods because with the algorithms that will predict genes, you can come up with essentially any number you want. Only 1.1% of the genetic code actually looks like it codes for protein. So the other 98 to 99% random orientations of these four-letter codes can create strings of sequence that look to the algorithms as though they're genes. Now, some of them may be really genes, but that's why we wanted to have an evidence approach. Our 26,000 gene number is based on a set of genes that not only had good computer predictions, but had two or more lines of confirming evidence. For example, they had a match in the mouse genome and an expressed gene or protein. We predicted another 11,000 genes that we call hypotheticals, and they only had one line of evidence. And an EST hit can be an artifact. Five to 10% of the ESTs are just random genomic sequences, so you can't use those as absolute data that those are real genes. And a mouse hit could be due to a pseudogene region and not actually an express gene. Uh, Computationally, the 11,000 genes look very different in the hypothetical set than in the known set, and we think most of them will not be uh, real. If you haven't seen it, the figure one in the science paper was roughly three feet by four feet, and we considered a wonderful irony that one of the largest calculations in biology, the output of it had to be printed on paper to see it, we can't get enough pixels on a computer screen to actually show that figure. This is just showing a few inch splice of it. But one thing you can see when you look at this is there's regions of the genome with very high gene densities. Then you can find adjacent regions like right below that very dense region with almost no genes whatsoever. We call these deserts. It was known that the gene density was somewhat heterogeneous, but nobody knew to what extent. In our early extrapolations, saying there were 50 to 80,000 genes, came from chromosome 4 and 19 with densities approximately in that one very dense region that you see there. To put things in context, this is zooming way in, and that little carrot stick there is the gene for the human beta-adrenergic receptor that took that 
10 years of work to get to and that one year of sequencing. So we are actually delighted that it was actually in the human genome. Um, but in fact, it helps put things in context that we think is the most important thing going forward in biology that these genome maps will not only permit, but hopefully require. In the 1970s, when I was receiving my training and starting as a young faculty member, was, I call it the decade of cyclic nucleotides. Almost everything in physiology and medicine was explained by cyclic AMP concentrations going up or down in the cell. There were literally tens of thousands of papers published. And it didn't seem very rational that all of biology could really be explained on that basis. But when you zoom in, ignore all the rest of the genome map, you know, it's easy to come up with those kinds of hypotheses. Hopefully from now on, biology, whether it's looking at this gene or any other, will be viewed in the context of the other 26,000 genes uh, and all the proteins that are associated with expression. If we look at the 26,000 genes, over a third of them are clearly unknown function, even though we're pretty sure these are all real. I'm sure the question right on the tip of everybody's tongue is if we only, you know, we have roughly twice as many genes as a fruit fly, do we just have two of everything that a fruit fly has? And the answer is clearly no. We see four or so major lineages that expanded tremendously over the last 600 million years. We have an immune system. Drosophila and insects don't have an effective immune system. So all the genes associated with our immunity are new in these lineages. We have homeostasis. All the genes, think of all the uh, genes and proteins associated with our blood vascular system and regulating it. We like to think we have a much bigger brain. Uh, signal transduction genes were one of the biggest categories in the genome and also one of the largest expansions as we went forward uh, over the last 600 million years. But I think one of the most interesting categories with a tremendous expansion, I think the largest statistical one, was in the nucleic acid binding category, particularly transcription factors. People wanted there to be a large number of human genes. I mean, we have to be much more important and much more complex than a fruit fly, so we, we must have 10 times as many genes as they do. Genes are part of our everyday vocabulary. They're in everything from Super Bowl ads to um, things people use in, in normal conversations. You have the gene for this, you have your mother's trait for this. And if you think that there's a gene for every human trait and every human quirk, there has to be a very large number of genes. Some in the biotechnology community wanted there to be a very large number of genes uh, and bid up the number as commodities in the one to 200,000 range. When I published a paper in the early 70s saying there were only 50 to 80,000 human genes, I got a very angry call from Molly Steinberg, who was the co-founder and then CEO of Human Genome Sciences, who was screaming obscenities at me in the telephone. And I said, Wally, what's the problem? Uh, why do you have a problem with there being 80,000 human genes? 
He said, I just sold 100,000 of them to SmithKline Beecham. <laughs> and he was absolutely sure that uh, he was going to lose 20% of the dollars on that deal. So there are all kinds of reasons people wanted there to be uh, more genes. I think it's actually much more exciting that there's a smaller number. I think it helps make it much clearer that we can't be hardwired. There aren't sufficient number of genes to cover that. And that's why the transcription factor expansion is exciting, because it's going to be the regulation of gene sets uh, that lead to the more interesting biology. We found a lot of these genes through comparative genomics. If we had not sequenced and assembled the mouse genome, we would not have been able to do a good interpretation of the human genome. And other genomes are really helping with that even more. We sequenced three different strains of mice to make sure that we had polymorphic diversity. Uh, and the assembly has now been completed. And the assembly with roughly 5.5x coverage of the mouse genome gave the same scaffold size as we published in the science paper on the human genome. The mouse chromosomes and the human chromosomes are remarkably similar. If you break them up in different size pieces, they will form very similar sets. This is important in terms of looking more closely at gene regulation. I don't know if, if this shows up or not. This is the uh, Down syndrome region of human chromosome 21. And all these genes exist in the exact same order on this region of mouse chromosome 16. One of the interesting findings in this region is the amyloid precursor protein associated with Alzheimer's disease. And a little known fact of individuals with Down syndrome usually don't live much past the age of 35, but if they do, virtually 100% of them get Alzheimer's disease. And so now this mouse model uh, is proving to be valuable in understanding that. The different chromosomes, again, break into different pieces. This is, again, looking at a different part of chromosome 21, a mouse chromosome, and a part of humus chromosome 22. You can see largely the same genes in the same order with some rearrangements. When we lay large pieces of the mouse genome on top of the human genome, with these type of experiments, anything that shows up at the diagonal is uh, indication of sequence identity. You can see it somewhat punctate, and as we zoom in on this, we find those spots where, that are highly conserved are the exons associated with the genes. So the mouse genome has been our secret decoder ring uh, because those are the regions that are highly conserved throughout evolution. The rest of the areas vary tremendously and don't show up with high identity. We have difficulty finding regulatory regions. We don't have algorithms that know how to predict those. But again, laying the mouse genome on top of the human genome, we find regions of conserved sequence that statistically we find these regions in uh, with a high uh, frequency. This is just an example of how those same sites can lead to the same functional regulation. Also, as we look at the human regulatory sites versus the mouse, occasionally we find minor sequence differences. 
that could be important subtle differences in how gene expression uh, is regulated. Here's another region as we zoom in the annotation of human chromosome 6 and mouse chromosome 17. The exact same corresponding genes in the same order down the chromosome. We found only 300 genes in the human genome that don't have a counterpart in the mouse genome. We don't yet know how many genes in the mouse genome don't have a counterpart in the human genome. I keep getting asked, why don't we sequence the chimpanzee genome? This is one good reason right now it's not going to be very helpful in comparative genomics paradigms. This is work from Pabo in Germany who sequenced 10,000 random sequences from the chimpanzee genome and overlaid them on the Slayer database and found on average only 1.27% differences between the chimpanzee genetic code and the human genetic code. You can see it varies from chromosome to chromosome. On the X chromosome, it's only 0.9% difference. This is across the entire genome, not just the 1.1% that's genes. It's the 75% of the genomes that's intergenic DNA that can vary wildly. It's the 24% of the genome that's in introns that can vary quite substantially. Uh, it's over that entire data set. The only really outliner, if you look at the genome map, you see this tiny little somewhat pathetic chromosome down at the bottom of the page called the Y chromosome. Now, that's not news to at least half the audience. Um, but apparently, it can vary very wildly, uh, both within the human population and between humans and chimps. So this is a chimpanzee wearing a tie. And if we look at the uh, chimpanzee uh, histamine receptor, and we look at the few letter differences between the chimpanzee and human, uh, we turn into an algorithm scientist. <laughs> and I don't know how directly that happened, but it's, uh, you know, that's what we're dealing with across the entire three billion letters of genetic code, just a few letters difference. So when you think of trying to use these genomes to interpret the genetic code through what's conserved, uh, it's extremely difficult uh, because the chimpanzee sequence is conserved across the entire area, whereas mouse, pufferfish, and dog, just the regions that are important as far as we can tell for biology are highly conserved and help interpret and validate the sequence. Now this is probably the figure that everybody ignored the most in the science paper, but is, I think, one of the most important ones in the entire paper. What this represents is we took all the genes on each chromosome and concatenated them together in the exact order and orientation they appear on that chromosome. We then asked the question, do we find those same genes in that same exact order on any other chromosome? Every place we found sets of three or more genes in the same order, we drew a colored line. You can see they're really quite extensive, and some of these are very large sets of hundreds of genes. What's probably hard to see at the bottom here is half of chromosome 20, that early stage in evolution, was duplicated and became chromosome 18. It's the same genes and essentially the same order only four different genetic events 
are, is all that's required to explain how chromosome 20 and chromosome 18 uh, evolved. If we take all the chromosomes and start to draw all the lines as we find these sets of genes around the genome that are duplicated, we find a very high density cluster of these genes. In the future, each and every one of these lines should be able to be assigned a date. We should be able to say roughly when that happened, potentially even what species it happened in if it's still around. And a lot of this makes tremendous sense. Chromosome 19 is the highest density chromosome. That's where all these red lines emanate from. What do we find on chromosome 19? We find transcription factors and neurotransmitter receptors, two of the categories that expanded tremendously during mammalian evolution, and we see these massive regions of duplication. A lot of these make sense. For example, here's the Hox genes that were part of these duplications. The expansion of those uh, is a key part of developmental uh, biology. We can track these back to different species. Here's duplications that were clear in the C. elegans genome. We can find these same duplications mimicked in the human genome, uh, and we can actually track these going forward. So we know that some of these events occurred back before the development of the C. elegans genome. With the whole genome shotgun method, we also get genetic variation from each individual, and our database has roughly four million SNPs in it. Some of these are useful in terms of trying to predict pharmaceutical responses. One particular one uh, in a receptor gene led to determining basically whether a drug would work on that receptor and would allow predictive events uh, to occur. Changing that one letter of the genetic code change one amino acid, which changed the binding site of this receptor. We know many of these changes are associated with susceptibility to infectious disease. For example, with malaria, variations in the tumor necrosis factor receptor promoter region, not the gene uh, coding region itself, is found, this one variant is found in about 5% of Africans, and it leads to a fourfold increase in the incidence of cerebral malaria. With AIDS, numerous polymorphisms in the human genome are known that lead to either increased or decreased uh, infection with AIDS. There's two that lead to very rapid progression and early death. One is associated with extreme resistance to AIDS infection that occurs in about eight or nine percent of the Caucasian population, but only 0.1% of the black population. So what does that tell us? It tells us it's a very recent event. Scientists at the National Cancer Institute think they've identified that event, and they think it was associated with the plague in Europe about 700 years ago. And it turns out that this same variant in the CCR5 gene leads to resistance to Yersinia infections. We can trace down these events and perhaps use this information uh, to come up with better approaches for dealing with drugs and infections. 
The genetic code, for example, those mismatched DNA repair enzymes, though, will not, if we measure them and you tell you whether you will get colon cancer, they'll tell you whether you have an increased susceptibility to get colon cancer. Our view, if we want yes, no answers, we have to go into the protein world. And if on the, there's on the order of 30,000 genes, as I said earlier, we think there's maybe as 250,000 uh, different proteins. We're building a very large proteomics factory to sequence roughly a million protein sequences a day to understand the correlation of different protein patterns with disease. This was not possible until we had the genetic code. The way proteins are sequenced with mass specs is we get peptide fragments that get compared back to databases. If the sequence is not in the database, you can't interpret it at all. New technology being developed, again, by Hunkapeller's team is changing it so we can do thousands of samples an hour. This is a new time-of-flight time mass spectrometer that can deal with complex mixtures of 300 or so proteins at a time and deconvolute it mathematically because of the genetic code. We're now using this approach to try and come up with early diagnostic markers for breast cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, and lung cancer as starting programs, and also to look at the primary and metastatic tumors to find unique expression patterns for developing uh, vaccines, particularly using uh, T cell recognition. What's known with antigen-presenting cells is the proteins get chopped up and small peptides then get expressed with these major histocompatibility complexes that are then recognized by T-cell receptors. This helps lead to uh, immunity. There's unique approaches that are being uh, developed in terms of getting epitopes from multiple proteins to develop multivalent of vaccines. Uh, this is from identifying new proteins in the genome, synthesis of these artificial protein constructs, that optimizing and measurement of the uh, binding, uh, developing and testing these uh, in animals, and then manufacturing these synthetically. And this is beginning to look very promising in vaccine delivery systems. So I've given you a glimpse of the last 10 years of what we've been doing as we move from genomes now into understanding proteins and protein expressions. We think that's going to be the essential link between the genetic code and disease diagnosis and treatment. This is an early phase in this field. My view is that over 95% of all discoveries that will be made in the human genome remain to be discovered, uh, and I think it's going to be a very exciting ride. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. Um, I'm sure Dr. Vendor would be happy to entertain a few questions. Yes. Loud, please.
repeat the question? I think the question is, what's the plan for trying to elucidate the function of the at least 36 percent of the human genome gene set that are unknown genes? There's lots of methods that we can think of in terms of potential high-throughput methods to get hints. But I think if there was any data set that ever justified individual laboratory efforts, it's this data set that we now have from the human genome. Most of those are going to have to be solved one at a time and aren't necessarily amenable to high-throughput methods giving us the complex answers that we're going to need. So I don't view that I'm personally necessarily going to work out the function of those genes. We're hoping that the scientific community as a whole will pick up that challenge. Yes. So the question is, what's my definition and view on what the proteome is? Well, the quote that appeared from me in the Wall Street Journal said there ain't no such thing as the proteome. Um, I think people are trying to extrapolate from a somewhat finite system of the human chromosomes to imply that there's going to be a finite system for everything else in biology. I think it's just silly. Uh, with the rapidly dynamically changing protein sets in our 100 trillion different cells, that's not something that I think can never be absolutely defined. Uh, perhaps somebody is interested in coming up with a catalog of, you know, at least one element of everything that exists in the protein world as a modified or proteolytically cleaved product from things that come out of the genome. We don't think that's going to be particularly useful. Maybe it will as an overall catalog, but that's why we're taking a disease-specific approach. A million protein sequences a day seems like a lot, but when you're trying to deconvolute data from breast cancer samples, we're worried that it's nowhere near enough in terms of the throughput we need to examine complex samples from multiple fluids and tissues from a substantial number of individuals to actually really understand the link between protein sets and disease. Uh, I think it's part of biotech hype that it is a closed-end system that all somebody has to do is sequence all the proteins and they will have something called the proteome. It's a terrible word. Um, I fought its adaption. I lost. Um, I even occasionally use the word because at least most people have a general idea you're talking about the protein world with it. Um, uh, it's not very precise, and I think that's unfortunate as both the lay public builds its concepts from what is described in the press and even the scientific concepts that people might try to define from thinking that it's a finite entity. Yes? So the, the question is the standard patent question. I think it's the same person in every audience I'm at that always asks that question. Um, but I appreciate the chance to clarify it. You know, we said at the beginning of forming Solera that we might file patents on one to 300 genes. 
people trying to compete with us used the threat that we were going to patent the genome as a threat that therefore they had to have more public money to compete with us. Uh, we have only filed applications on less than 200 genes. The expectation is probably less than 10 or 20 percent of those will ever issue. Uh, and we don't think that gene patents are really relevant for 99 percent of drug development or anything particularly coming out of genomics. I think that was an artifact of people trying to sell ESTs and the importance of them to the rest of the world. I think in terms of genes as targets, uh, we're all better off if there's freedom to operate with those. Uh, and I don't believe there's value in keeping those tied up as biolo biological entities. On the small number of human genes that will lead directly to a therapeutic, such as the insulin gene, such as the erythropoietin gene, such as the GMCSF gene, those are very important gene patents for companies to have to invest the half a billion dollars or so that need to be invested to develop those as pharmaceutics. But that's such a small subset of the human gene set that I don't think it's relevant. If it was a larger set, then I would be in favor of that larger set being patented because that's the only way those discoveries will be turned into new drugs and treatments for disease. Yes. So my dear friend Richard Preston uh, asked me to comment on human freedom. To what extent are we controlled by our genes and what extent we, are we free? I thought about giving a flippant answer saying I'm free to ignore your question. <laughs> uh, but I don't think people will find answers in the human genetic code for those complex issues. Uh, I don't think our intellects, our personalities are hardwired in the sense that we can find precise events in the genetic code that will code for our life events. That's why, as you know from our conversations, identical twins, I guess they're called clones today, uh, have very different life outcomes, very different personalities. Uh, if one gets schizophrenia, the, le the chance of the other one getting schizophrenia is less than 50-50. Uh, I think that's what the small number of genes helps people to perhaps realize or visualize. And the fact that we share almost all those genes with every other mammal on the planet hopefully means that the unique traits that we attribute to ourselves Maybe our dogs don't attribute those to us, uh, but that we at least self-attribute, come out from the unique combinations and the plasticity of our nervous system based on the plasticity of the genome, not the hardwired nature of it.
So the question, just to sort of paraphrase it, you know, that there must be much more in the genome because those five individuals share all that same genetic sequence. You recall they also share it with the chimpanzees and, and other primates as well. Um, so you, you certainly can't argue that it's unique to human function. Um, I don't put great stock in the amount of DNA in the genome. We describe in our science paper two mammalian species with genomes about one-fifth the size of the human genome, probably with the same gene complement, uh, a type of deer and a type of bat. Uh, the corn genome is the same size as your genome. I, I'm not attacking you personally. It's the same size as, <laughs> as my genome as well. Uh, the largest genome, one of the largest genomes in a higher eukaryote is the lily genome. It has 91 billion base pairs of genetic code in contrast to our 3 billion letters. Just because it's there, I don't think it's appropriate to attribute biological significance or function to it. I think finding what's conserved between the different genomes different mammalian genomes, I think gives us some very solid clues as to what might be important biologically. And it depends on how it's important biologically. Gunter Blobel has this wonderful photograph of a nucleosome with the heterochromatin part of the chromosomes nicely folded around the euchromatin. Maybe it has function in its mass, not in its specific sequence whereas other key parts of the genetic code have their key significance in their absolute letter code. So you, you may be right, the mass may be important. We don't know that yet. Uh, we probably never will know that in terms of the human genome because uh, even though a lot of scientists in this field think it's junk DNA, I don't know anybody that's willing to have it dissected from their chromosomes and thrown out. Uh, but we will probably answer that with uh, eukaryotic, uh, single-cell eukaryotic organisms, for example. As to the thought, are we missing something in the genome, the answer is almost absolutely certainly yes. Uh, but all we're looking for is based on the rule set that we have, based on what is already known in biology, added to it all the things that we find conserved between the mouse genome and the human genome. Are there other things likely to be there? I'm almost certain that there will be. Craig, what advice would you have for uh, the undergraduates and the, and the graduate students in the, in the audience who are interested in uh, careers in the life sciences? Oh, buy Solera stock. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what, what other? 
I, I think the, the most important tool going forward in biology is clearly going to be the computer. Out of all this information, hopefully the computer will be how we narrow down the very large number of questions that could potentially be asked to significant ones that we can then go into the laboratory to test instead of trying to test every single one of them. So I think it's going to be impossible to operate in this field or, in fact, in the field of medicine without being computer literate going forward in the future. Yes? Yeah, I, I don't think I can comment on, on that at all. Uh, I, I try not to keep up with that field. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, I can't imagine a more exciting time to be a scientist than right now. I mean, in contrast to what those professors told me when I started graduate school, that it was really going to be very difficult to find anything new because it was already known, you can randomly pick any gene out of the genome from any of these species. There's now hundreds of thousands of unknown genes to choose from and spend a lifetime or several lifetimes studying that and make very significant contributions. It's impossible to turn in a direction and not make a discovery today. I mean, how could that not be one of the most exciting uh, periods? I'm personally driven by trying to have this information drive the treatment for complex diseases that affect us. I'm not satisfied to stop here this was a starting point to us. People viewed getting the genetic code was an endpoint because it was part of this multi-decade, multi-billion dollar plan that was viewed to be so complex that it was not simply solvable. We could not do proteomics without having the genetic code. We could not build appropriate databases without linking it back to this information. So we view that we're just getting started. I'm, I'm just. You know, I can't tell you how fun it is to make these discoveries and be the first one to look at this information. Um, you know, I think, you know, starting over at your age to be a scientist today, uh, you know, some of you are here from the class earlier. Um, I don't think anybody was there that was born in 1976 when you and I were talking about uh, some of these early phases of biology. Basically, anybody starting their career today will have the complete complement of essentially every gene in most key species. And there's no question in biology that should remain unanswerable. I think that's an extraordinary time to start a career. <laughs> well, some people think they solve prions. So. I think, I think that's a, a wonderful place to end, end our evening uh, on that inspiring and positive note. And I want to thank Craig. Yeah,